And you notice the pastor went into the pulpit with his own lunch. It was not a good sign. No, I'm just kidding. That's... I belong to you. It's one thing to know that God is love, you know? And, and it's quite another to personalize that to the point that you can say, and that love that God is belongs to me. It's as vast a difference as knowing in principle that uh, this is a nutritious lunch. But it'd be another thing for you to claim this as your lunch. So much so that it's not just yours in principle, but it's actually yours in fact. So that you actually engage in the process of ingesting it as your own. Mm. That's a good apple. That's a really good apple. I've only got one other in here, but it probably wouldn't be. Ingesting it. Tasting it. The psalmist said, oh, taste of the Lord and see that he's good. Now that's taking a bite of it. It's one thing to know in fact and in principle that this is a nutritious lunch. But there's a whole process between knowing this is an intri- a nutritious lunch and this becoming a lunch, listen, that's nurturing you. And, and, and too often Christians somewhere in that process get lost of knowing in their head that God is a loving God, but not fully ingesting that love for themselves and letting it nurture their soul as that love intends to nurture your soul. How do we get from the bag to belonging? That's kind of where Mac is in this chapter. He's been holding God at arm's length, and and he's come to learn in principle that some of his thoughts about God might have been askew. And he's, he's come to trust the Lord, uh, uh, at least in principle, but, but as he starts this process of, of acclimating his life to the truth that that God really loves him, he, he realizes he's got some hitching points, you know, some, some resistances. Oh, taste of the Lord and see that he is good. S- some of us taste of the Lord, but it's that kind of tasting that's, that's like, it's the tasting that's testing. You know what I mean? It's like this. It, it, it's when you turn to your kid at the table and said, oh, sure, you like it. Just taste it, you know? That tasting that's testing versus the tasting that's savoring. Oh, that's a good apple. Taste of the Lord and see that he's good. I, I wonder where you are in that process. Are you tasting to test? Are you savoring the love of God? Mac, I think in this chapter, has some clues for us for, for how we, we can make that journey as well. We've been studying 
the book, the shack, uh, to find the uh, Bible behind the book and the fact behind the fiction. To see if there's anything in these incredible chapters of fiction that, that unfold the heart of God in such a winsome way. Is there really truth enough to it that we can seek our teeth into it and really bank on it being true? Because it's backed up by something more than just a fictional tale, but actually uh, by the propositions of Scripture, by Scripture itself. I want to look at that this morning. In chapter 13, it actually ends this way. Uh, it seems that Mac is being given an opportunity with Jesus first and Sarah you and now with Papa to kind of unfold what it means that he now trusts them a little bit more than he ever has. And he's had a, a conversation, one of those incredible conversations uh, in, in chapter 13 with Papa. Uh, and it ends this way. Remember, uh, Papa, at least at this point in the story, is still a uh, loving, gregarious uh, black woman who seems to always be multitasking, and she especially loves to cook for her guests. They've been out on the front porch, and in the midst of all her just-prepared pastries and coffee that doesn't grow cold and enjoying one of those rich conversations, and it ends this way, kind of sums up the whole thing. Honey, you asked me what Jesus accomplished on the cross, so now listen to me carefully. Through his death and resurrection, I am now fully reconciled to the world. The whole world, Mac asked. You mean those who believe in you, right? The whole world, Mac. All I'm telling you is that reconciliation is a two-way street, and I've done my part totally, completely, finally, it's not the nature of love to force a relationship, but it is the nature of love to open the way. At that, Papa stood up, gathered the dishes to take into the kitchen. Max shook his head and looked up. So I don't really understand reconciliation, and I'm really scared of emotions. Is that about it? A summary of everything they've talked about before. So I don't really understand reconciliation, and I'm really scared of emotions. Is that about it? Papa didn't answer immediately, but she shook her head as she turned and walked away in the direction of the kitchen. Mac overheard her grunt and mutter as if to herself, Men, such idiots sometimes. <laughs> he couldn't believe it. Did I hear God call me an idiot? He called through the screen door. He saw her shrug her shoulders before disappearing around the corner and then heard, heard her yell back in his direction, if the shoe fits, honey, if the shoe fits. <laughs> Just another one of those wonderful, playful passages between two that love each other so deeply they have permission to do that. I don't really understand reconciliation and I'm really scared of emotions. Is that about it? Did you identify with Mac at all as you read through that chapter? Really scared uh, of emotions. Well, would that describe you? As it describes Mac, uh, what's being talked about there is Mac, when he got the note from Papa, this mysterious note that called him back to the shack, that horrific place that he had last seen, his, uh, or the last signs of it, he didn't see her, but the last signs of his abducted daughter, just her bloody dress was found there. He hadn't been back there in four years, and it, it's 
understandable why. But now he gets this mysterious note from Papa. Papa is his wife's name for God. She's kind of got a little more lovey-dovey thing going with God than he does. And Papa, and he thinks, well, I'm not going to invite her to go along. After all, he suspects that she probably blames him because he was with the child when she was abducted. And because he was busy with another one of his children, Missy, Uh, was vulnerable and was taken from him. And I think in the back of his mind, Max still wonders if Nan doesn't blame him in some way. And so he decides what some of the rest of us might decide in that kind of situation. He'll just handle it on his own. He he won't allow Nan in on it. So he he decides to go to the shack completely alone without Nan's knowledge to keep it from her. And he tells himself it's because he doesn't want Nan to be upset. And God confronts him in this chapter and says, now come on, Max. This wasn't to protect Nan. This was to protect you. To protect you from emotions that you can't handle, from feeling guilty all over again, for not being able to be in control of what was happening. And so you decided to go it alone rather than risk going with Nan. And Nan never got the opportunity to have her choice about whether or not she would come. And Nan, because of the way you handled it, true, never got the choice to decide whether or not she was going to blame you or blame you still further for the things that had happened. You made that decision for the both of you. I I wonder how, how many times some of us have decided to make a secret of something about ourselves something we've done or something we're doing, and told ourselves that the reason we're keeping it a secret is for the sake of those that we're, we're trying to protect out there. I'll go on this drinking binge this weekend, and, and, and I won't tell the wife about it, you know, because it would, it would just upset her. Um, I'll... I'll uh, I'll uh, indulge in taking these things home from the workplace, and I know they're really not mine, and I really can't cover them in my expense report, but, you know, it just upset the boss if I told him. And, and, and we, tell, we tell little secrets. We tell ourselves to protect others. And I wonder if God, like with Mac, would point to us and say, hey, 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 let's be honest about this. Who are we protecting? Because of his fear of Nan's reaction, uh, Mac starts keeping secrets, the secret of the note, the secret of, of, that requires him to go it alone. But those kind of protections, that way of responding to our world, uh, can become a pattern in our lives. And usually when that pattern shows itself in the present, that posture shows up, it's usually because we've come by it honest somewhere back there in the past. And God understands that. He doesn't, he doesn't come down on Mac because of that. He says, hey, man, you're a survivor. After all, your dad hurt you, and life hurt you. It's no wonder that you had to put up these walls between yourself and those things that have hurt you in the past. Remember his dad, deacon in the church, but drunkard at home and beat Mac and his mother senseless. How do you as a young kid make sense of all that? The only way to survive is to somehow wall your heart in from that kind of overwhelming tragedy and hurt. Again, it's natural, just human. It's a survival tactic. If you've ever been hurt like that in the past, to build a wall against it ever happening again. And maybe you haven't known such tragedies, but 
You've told yourself those little lies that support the walls in your world. You know? Like, after that one girl in college that broke your heart, it's justified the arm's length you keep all women in your life. After all, women are heartless. Little lie, justify the wall. Fathers can't be trusted, was Max. And so he kept Father God at full arm's length, knowing the kind of duplicity that exists in fathers. But you see, the problem with those kind of walls is they not only wall us off in safety from, from the bad that we're trying to keep out, they wall us off from everything on the other side of that wall. Not just from what could be bad about a father, but also from what could be good and nurturing about a father. And we build walls that starve our lives for those things that we most deeply need in self-protection when what we don't need there is a, and it's an absolute wall, but a gate. You know, a gate, something that, that we intentionally operate. Something that lets in the good but is discerning enough to shut the door to what's bad. And God wants to help us with that discernment to operate those kind of gates in our lives where, where we've erected these absolute impenetrable walls. Sometimes our, our, our lying to ourselves can, can get us in, in places where we're actually cornered these protective patterns, though they seem to work at first, don't always work in the end, do they? Uh, but there are perks uh, that seem to perpetuate them. For instance, have you ever noticed that we expect a little less of victims? And so if I can develop a victim identity, then others don't have the right to expect as much from me. And, and, and that's a perk that works in our advantage quite often. You're looking at me like, I have no idea what he's talking about. (laughs) You know how how, how, how when I'm I'm the wounded person in the bunch, I I then am the one that's deserving of everyone's sympathy and empathy. And so sometimes that sympathy and empathy can become such a a nurturance to my soul that that I decide, well, I'll just remain a victim in order to keep getting loved like that. Or, or, or maybe there was a, there's a tragedy in our lives, and so every, everybody in, in, our, in our workplace knows, well, don't, don't, don't ask too much of him right now. You know he's going through X, right? And, and as long as I'm the broken person, well, then those lowered expectations give me some freer boundaries in which to live, and it's, it's easy to become someone who even then has not just been victimized, a thing of the past, but becomes a victim. That becomes my, my very identity. Papa talks about that in this, this chapter. You've known people like that that just kind of got stuck in the perks of where they were paralyzed. And God wants to call us out of that, to free us to live again, to enjoy good relationships again, to develop the kind of boundaries and gates in our life that that let the good in but but say no to the bad because we can recognize it now god wants to reframe those experiences not as impenetrable walls of absolute protection but rather now as filters to understand both 
good and evil. And to let him guide us in understanding what is safe to let in and, and, and what is harmful. Those perks tend to perpetuate them, at least to the point that we finally get ourselves cornered in, in, in one like this. The book goes on to say that there are many like Mac who have, who have decided that behaving in a certain way was going to be their salvation only to discover that those lies and those, those things that they've depended upon later corner them and they're not their savior, they're their devourer. Addicts know that story. I think all of us know that story. I, I, I know I've known that story and, and, and some of the... Uh, more subtle and surprising. I, I, I've got a great Christian family. came from great stock. Mom and dad love me so much, it's embarrassing. And uh, I, I grew up being kind of a, a kid that, that wanted to please, that, that, that wanted to excel, that uh, kind of a golden boy. You know what I'm talking about? And I, and I got on to seminary and colleges and got in one of those psychobabble groups that totally turned my world upside down. And they pointed this out to me. And that is that even if... I, I was wondering why, why I was struggling with the certainty of, of my worth and the certainty of my, even my parents' love for me. And they said, well, Chris, that's because all your life you've been what they wanted you to be. All of your life, you, you've projected what it was that was to be pleasing. And that was true about you, but that's not all that's true about you. And deep down inside, you know that. Your parents know that you went out last weekend, but they don't know all that you did last weekend. And as we project this image to somebody else trying to control how they respond to us, trying to make ourselves winsome and, and lovable and respectable, have you ever had that corner you in return and realize that all the love that that wins is love for Someone that's not fully who you are. And so even, this is the trap of it, even the love that is given you is now a love that you can't fully trust. It evaporates like cotton candy. You know there's no substance to it because that love is a love of something you've projected yourself to be, not a love of all that you are. And then you're stuck. What do you do? What do you do? Do you come out of the dark and, and let yourself be known for all you are and risk that those who you count on love from the most may not even love you at all if, if they know you for who you truly are? Or do you continue to, to project and, and build this glossed over half-truth of who you are, this lie upon lie upon lie, upon lie, cornering yourself further and further and further in this place where you feel so completely unloved. 
And everyone's praying for the pastor now. Oh, he's so sad. No, I'm, I'm, <laughs> am I the only one that's ever been there? It's a, it becomes a prison. And many of us, like Mac, have found ourselves in that place where we wonder if we can risk absolute truthfulness. We wonder if it's really a comforting thing that Father God sees all. And if Father God does see all, what can we count on from Him? How how do we ever gain the courage to step out as as this chapter suggests? And and here it is. This this is the prescription that, that He gives us. So what do I do now, Mac asks at the bottom of page 188. Well, you tell her, Mac, speaking of Nan, you face the fear of coming out of the dark and you tell her and ask her forgiveness and you let her forgiveness heal you. Ask her to pray for you, Mac. Take the risks of honesty. When you mess up again, ask for forgiveness again. It's a process, honey, and life is real enough without having to be obscured by lies. And remember, I'm bigger than your lies. I can work beyond them. But that doesn't make them right. and doesn't stop the damage they do or the hurt they cause others. But what if she doesn't forgive me? Mac knew that this was deep inside a fear that he lived with. It felt safer to continue to throw new lies on the growing pile of old ones. Ah, that's the risk of faith, Mac. Faith does not grow in the house of certainty. That's a mouthful. Mac, faith does not grow in the house of certainty. I'm not here to tell you that Nan will forgive you. You can't control as your lies have deceived you. You can't control how someone else responds to you. That's one of the scariest discoveries you'll ever make in life. I know many of us still, still really believe that, that if we're good enough and if we act appropriately enough and winsomely enough that, that we secure by how we act and how we control our lives the love of someone else. It ain't true. I, I've had marriages that have come apart and I've sat there with spouses that finally it hit them that all their faithfulness and all their goodness did not guarantee the love of that other person. That that other person has the freedom to choose whether or not to love. They have the freedom to make a good decision and to make a bad one. And we can't control it. What a reality check. Welcome to real life where God's a desperate need. Because who can you truly trust to be absolutely truthful with and they still love you unreservedly? Friends, there's only one place you find that love. And that's the one that 2,000 years ago showed that love to you and to me on that cross. While we were yet sinners, he died for us. When we had nothing to offer him in return, nothing? You mean there's nothing that I do that then 
obligates God to love me like that. No, God is just that kind of love. He's different than anybody else. All, of, all the rest of us in our nature are, inti- are, are selfish. And so when we love one another, it's almost always, in some ways, conditional. Even our greatest love affairs in this life, in some ways, because of our selfish human nature, become conditional. We realize that there's an exchange, that there's an interplay, that people respond to us when the love that they feel that they should get from us is somehow not as promised. That They recoil. That's human nature. God's nature is of a totally different substance. It's absolute. It's unshakable. It's undiminishable. But most of us have never gotten to that place that we fully trust God to love us that way. And so how could we possibly trust someone else to love us if they knew us truthfully? Because we're so dependent upon their love, we're not sure we can do without it. And so sometimes we settle for a life that's built on lies for whatever perks it wins for us. Rather than receiving and and claiming that life that could be ours, listen, if we lived it truthfully, where we had risked it, you know what it's like to be fully known and fully loved? That's everything the human heart longs for here and in heaven. And you can come to know it right now. If you'll trust God to love you like that, can you? Do you really trust Him to be that kind of loving Father? Are you savoring His love? Or still taste testing? Mac, in this chapter, I think comes to trust that love more deeply. And one of the things that he gets past is this idea of the bad cop God. You ever done that? You ever kind of split God up into there's a loving side to God, then there's a stern side to God. And what's, what side do we usually attach to the stern God? Father, Son, or Holy Spirit? Father, good old Papa. We'll not put up with that. Not Papa. <laughs> Father God, that's right. So, so is that true? Is that experience in, in this life something that translates into our relationship with God? Is there this good cop, bad cop reality to God where, where God the Father stands back, very disappointed in all our sin. We're going to have to do something about that. But Jesus, he rushes right in, goes to the cross, empathizes with all our sin. You know, he understands our human side. And so we end up thinking, hey, Jesus is the nice guy. God the Papa? Mm, not sure about him. I can hang out with Jesus all day long here in this life, but going home to Papa? Not really sure I'm going to be received there. After all, Jesus gave his life wonderfully for me, but Papa may still be up in heaven going, not sure that was a good trade. <laughs> yeah, ever, ever had that kind of duality, kind of suspicion about whether, whether or not you can, you can really trust God fully? To fully love you and not be holding a little something back, you know, for a little smack here and there uh, along the way? Ever, ever felt like, you know, when, when you came to Christ, sure, it was, it, was a, it was a pure deal. He loved you and he forgave you of all your sins, but now that you're a Christian, oh, oh, oh. There's, some, there's some expectations here. And you ain't living up to them, buddy. 
So when you come for communion, you better sure that you be sure that your head is hung extra low. <laughs> and and we, we carry this guilt. And God's saying, put down that filthy sock. I, I don't want anything from you. I want you. See, you don't understand my love. It's not looking for something from you. My love isn't selfish like that. My love's greatest satisfaction is to pour myself out fully into you. So at any point that you don't allow that to potential to become reality because you suspect that, that it might not be all true and it might not be completely unconditional, and so you're just going to taste of my love rather than savoring it, fully ingesting it. All that frustrates me in that process is the fact that my love has not been fully received. What a God. How do we know that God's like that? Because Jesus didn't hold anything back. He gave himself completely, utterly on that cross. And while we were yet sinners, Christ proves his love for us. He died in our place. He died that he might win that opportunity to fully love us in that way. And, and, and so, Max struggling with this good cop, bad cop thing. 2 Corinthians 5.19 puts it this way, that God was in Christ. Now, if that was talking about Christ in Christ, that wouldn't make sense. God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. And Max says, well, cer certainly not the whole world. Just those who believe in you, right? I mean, I know, I know the Christian equation and how, how it all works. And, and we'll get to that to, in a minute. That, that's a complete misunderstanding of the unlimited, unrestrained love that God has for you. Romans 8, 32 and 34 actually puts it this way. If God is for us, God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, if God is for us, if God's fully for us, who can be against us? And then he, then he explores it with each one of the Trinity. How, how could, how, if God is fully for us and he gave us the very best he could give in Jesus Christ, if that's God the Father's heart, will he not fully give us, freely give us all things? See, no hesitation or, or, or restriction in the heart of Father God. Well, well, then Jesus. Jesus must be the one that, that wonders if, if his sacrifice is really worth all he's getting out of us. You know, I mean, he, he went to a cross and this is what he gets in return. And, and, uh, and, and we, well, maybe Jesus is the one that's resentful that, that we're not pulling our weight. And, and, and then he goes on, no, no, no. Who, who, who could be against us? Who, who condemns? You wonder, well, the person with the greatest right to condemn is Jesus Christ himself. But no, Jesus Christ, it says, is not condemning us. Jesus Christ is actually sitting at the side of the Father, our lawyer in court, advocating for our goodness. No hesitation on his part to love us fully. So where's the hesitation? In this love connection and reconciliation. Folks, it's all on our side. And that's the point he's trying to make. He's not trying to say that what Christ did on the cross 2,000 years ago now automatically creates a relationship between God and every other human person. No, relationship is a two-way street. It requires a response. Even if one side of that street is fully committed, it's not a relationship until the other side turns in response. You with me? It's a two-way street. 
He's not saying that this is a universal claim of salvation. He's saying it's a universal claim of invitation. To the heart of God, you cannot count yourself out. And sometimes people listen to Christians trying to wrap their brains around that theological truth, and they hear us say what Max says. You, you mean those who love you back, really, right? I mean, you don't mean that this thing is, is, a, is a sense deal uh, for, for everybody. You don't really mean that, do you, God? I mean, come on. No, you misunderstand my heart. You will never lock eyes with another human on the face of this planet for which I did not fully love, which I do not fully love, and for which I did not die. I don't care what color of their skin. I don't care what background they're from. I don't care if they've, they've come from Buddhist roots or Christian roots. I have, a, I have a great evangelist friend, Bob Tuttle, who actually led Muslims to Christ by telling them that they couldn't become good Muslims without accepting Jesus. <laughs> it's a very interesting strategy, but it's actually quite truthful. Nor, nor can a Christian. Some of us are just like Muslims. We're trying to live up to some standard of law by which we might be accepted by God. We keep thinking someday we might be good enough to really warrant His love. And it ain't ever going to happen. There's not enough dirty socks in the world. And even a Muslim, to fulfill any kind of moral law, has to be filled and overflowing with love. And how can you be overflowing with love unless something of love, unconditional, is flowing to you? You get it? God so loves you that in responding back to God in that love, you become the kind of person that can actually fulfill a moral law because you're no longer focused on your selfish self. That love turns you outward and you don't commit adultery with someone you love. You don't lie to someone you love. You don't covet what's theirs if you love them. And so God fulfills the law by filling us with His love. And we've got it turned around backwards. We think, no, by fulfilling the law, I earn His love. No, no, no. And I think that's what God's trying to get across in this chapter. It's not a matter of how fully uh, you can impress God. It's a matter of how fully God's love has impressed you. Do you fully trust it? What's Papa really like? What seals this choice of reconciliation and your choice makes all the difference because God will not make you make it a two-way street. Love won't ever force it. 
If all God was interested in in obedience, he could do that. But even more than your obedience, he treasures your love. So what do you choose? Your choice makes it a two-way street or not. And what makes that street two-way is that you recognize that God has paved the whole street from him to you. And the way it becomes a two-way street is not by you doing any paving on your own. It's by you choosing his street as your street. And that street is Jesus Christ. He is the way. He is the gate to God. And some of you this morning need to get past trying to offer God another deal. And receive the one that's beyond compare. But more than just doing that in principle, I hope you trust it so much in your heart that you can do it in practice. But what makes that tumbler fall is you fully fully trusting God to be who God says God is. What's your picture of Papa? Is he holding anything back? Or is his heart fully given to you? Does your image of a heavenly father look like this? This? 